but as we as we get ready, let me just say a word of prayer for the uh, continuing uh, continuation of our service. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for this time together. God, I thank you so much just for the beauty of of Anne and Rogerio and their talents and their gifts that you've given to them, Lord, and that they've cultivated over so many years that they're able to share that with us, Lord, and bring us deeper into worship with you. Lord, I thank you for Lisa and her heart and just the spirit with which she prays uh, and that she prayed over us this morning, God. Um, and truly, Lord, we pray that the, the, the rest of the service, Lord, the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, the meeting at your table, that all of these things would be done for your glory. Uh, and so, God, we, we pray these things now. We give them to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, this morning's uh, scripture is Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the word of God. Well, friends, um, thank you all for being here. Uh, let me just say, let me say that again. Let me say those two words again. Thank you. Uh, since launching in mid-January and meeting each week for worship on Zoom, uh, I think this community has in very unique and distinct ways uh, that we've been um, knitted closer together. And uh, I'm just really grateful for that. I'm grateful uh, for this opportunity to connect virtually like this. Uh, and since mid-January, we've also been uh, embarking on a year-long uh, sermon series in the New Testament book of Acts. We're slowly making our way through this book uh, with all the hope that we might gain a better understanding of of how the Holy Spirit moved in the first century and how the Holy Spirit continues to move to this very day. And as, as I've said before, Acts is certainly uh, an historical account of the Christian church in the first century, but it's much more than that, as it is, uh, as our sister Rinalda shared in her sermon last week, that is truly the story of the acts of the Holy Spirit, the actions, the acting of the Holy Spirit. And while we've been seeing some pretty amazing things happen over the last eight months, we've also seen some tragic things occur too. And we don't gloss over those things. We don't rush past them. One of the, the things a slow, long sermon series like this allows us to do is just that, to focus on what Luke, the author of Acts, what he tells his audience. Rather than kind of picking and choosing passages, we, 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 we read, we hear every verse and consider what that might mean for us for this church, for this community today. And this morning's passage, I think, is a great example of what it means to pause for a moment and to sit with a particular passage that Luke gives us rather than rushing past, past, um, past it. This isn't a feel-good passage. Um, it's not a group of verses uh, to celebrate uh, what would have been our first in-person gathering. Probably not the best passage for that. 
Uh, so it might be a small unexpected blessing that we're on Zoom today, uh, but it is a profoundly important reminder, I think, of what it means to be in community, to be in a community that follows the Holy Spirit, a community that claims Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord and Christ, as we saw way back in Acts chapter 2. And what we've seen over the last several months is that though there are some incredible things that happen, the Holy Spirit guides Jews and Gentiles to not merely exist together, but to live together and to serve together, to eat together. The Holy Spirit moves the church to care for those facing, facing deep struggle, facing famine. The Holy Spirit faces disciples who have died, raises disciples who have died back to life. The Holy Spirit leads. So there are some incredible things that happen. These things don't, but these things don't happen in a perfect, easy world, as we've seen. In fact, when, when these things happen, when the Holy Spirit moves, God's people are almost always moved toward, not away from, but toward conflict. I've said that before. And one of the centers of conflict that we have seen in the book of Acts is the prison. And prison becomes a significant focal point for us in this morning's passage and in next week's passage as well. Um, in his new book, uh, Subversive Witness, uh, which actually comes out this week in just a few days, um, a pastor named Dominic Gilliard, uh, he calls this passage, these few verses, um, a story about police brutality and a story about a corrupt criminal judicial system that is more committed to money than justice. And I think if you, if you let that, that, that short description kind of sink in, and you refer to these verses that we heard read, it's, it's actually kind of easy to see why he describes it that way. Last week in verses uh, 16, 17, and 18, uh, we get the setup for this morning's passage. As Paul and Silas and Luke, they're, they're heading to what they were calling a place of prayer. Uh, they were met by a female slave who could predict the future. And because of this gift, we're told that, that she earned a great deal of money for the people who owned her. Now, Paul, with the power of the Holy Spirit, he commanded that the spirit that had taken over this woman leave her. He declared, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And we're told at that very moment, the spirit left her, presumably leaving her without any sort of fortune-telling gift or anything like that. And as we see in this morning's passage, it left those who owned her now with no way to financially exploit her for their own gains. We see that in the opening verse, right? In verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Those who had some type of power in this community, who definitely had financial power, when, the, when that power was threatened, they attack. And they attack knowing exactly what they're doing. In a heinous manifestation of, of power and privilege, the owners of this girl use hatred and fear to get others on their side. Verse 20, this claim that these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. What's important to note and why we walk, not run through scripture, is that if we recall last week's passage, we very clearly see that these men did not throw the city into an uproar, but that that's the message that is proclaimed here. That is the hatred that is used to stoke fear in the surrounding community. And it's also not just a lie about what they did, but it's stoking fear about who these men are, that these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar. And we see this tactic work, verse 22, the surrounding community joins in this attack and it escalates to physical violence. 
to the magistrates, the state advocating and approving of this abuse. We're, we're told they're beaten with rods, uh, which is also then described as being severely flogged. And after all of that, they're thrown into prison and they're put into chains. So let's just pause there for a moment. Like I said, it'd be very easy to just read through this and think, yep, that's early church persecution, and then just kind of keep moving on. In fact, most sermons uh, on this text won't really pause on this passage, but they'll include it in either the passage that we heard last week or the one that we'll look at next week. But this is a devastating story, and it's a painful reality that I think we, we need to face and that we need to sit with and that we have to confront. When the Holy Spirit moves in the life of God's people, sometimes it moves us into deep pain, into unexpected and unwarranted suffering. These men were on their way to a place of prayer, and this happened. And we see that in the reality of in the life of Jesus Christ, a man who was dragged into the public square, who was beaten and severely flogged, who was stripped of his clothes, who was ridiculed and mocked out of hatred and fear, and who was wrongfully arrested. You know, when we talk about Jesus and the, and the sacrifice he made on the cross, his death on the cross, that's often what we focus on, his sacrifice, his love for his people and his death, which is all very true and very uh, necessary for us to focus on. But we don't confront enough that these things came at the hands of men who felt their power to be threatened. That the religious leaders who saw in Jesus a threat to their way of life, to their influence, to their power, that Jesus' death came at the hands of an abuse of power, a wrongful arrest of severe brutality administered by the government. And here, so many years later, after that, the disciples of Jesus Christ bear the same lifestyle, a life of humiliation, a life of torture, and a life of chains. Dr. Willie James Jennings, uh, a professor at Yale and the author of a commentary on the book of Acts, he says that these disciples are wearing the familiar clothing of Christ, that their bodies are the bodies of prisoners, but ultimately they are the bodies of Jesus. When Christians think of church or building a new community or other things like that, we often turn to the book of Acts because it's the record we have of the first century Christian church. And because there are really, like I said, there are really beautiful moments of God uniting people together, of knitting people together. Several months ago, the last few verses of Acts chapter 2, we, we, we looked at this. We saw a glimpse of this, that God's people, they come together. They share all that they had. They, they broke bread with one another. They prayed daily. They worshiped daily. And they gave to those in need. And when that happens, we're often told, too, that the watching world paid attention. And that those who may not have been in that community uh, of followers of Jesus, that they were watching and paying attention and often that this community of God grew and grew and grew. Those are beautiful moments and moments that we can draw so much hope from, even inspiration from. What does it mean to live in community with one another, right? What does it mean to live in a complex neighborhood like Hell's Kitchen and share all we have and pray every day and, and live with people who are different from us? But the reality is that for all of those beautiful moments, they don't come without conflict and without sacrifice and without struggle. The answers to those, those quick questions I just posed, what does it mean to live in community? 
What does it mean to live in Hell's Kitchen and share all we have, share life with others? The answer to those questions are not always going to be fun or easy. The answers may not find us shackled in chains or beaten in public or wrongfully arrested, but when the Spirit moves in a community, the Spirit moves us into the reality of the world around us, into the complexities of the world around us, and into the pain and the conflict of the world around us. And what we see in this morning's passage is that, is that these men are moved even deeper into the reality of the world around them, this world in the first century. And I think what we see is that that may not be too far from the reality of our world today. That there are those who will use and abuse their privilege for their own gain. That there are those who will use hatred and fear to stoke crowds. That there are unjust systems that wrongfully arrest and incarcerate. And that in the midst of all of this, the Holy Spirit is present and moving. Next week, we're going to see that. Next week, we are going to see that. But this week, we sit with the stark reality of injustice and of pain and of hurt and of confusion and of darkness all experienced and embodied by the most devout followers of God. Friends, as difficult as this passage might be, I want to tell you that this is what it means for us to be a church. When we come together, we experience so, so many things. I mean, imagine these disciples. They're on their way to pray, right, as we saw in last week's passage, and they free an enslaved girl from a spirit that was controlling her. I mean, that is an incredible feat of God working. And though we're not told how they're feeling, it's safe to assume they're feeling good. They're feeling empowered and excited and probably affirmed in what God is doing in their life and in this journey. And then they're accused and they're beaten. They're humiliating, uh, humiliated. They're stigmatized as foreigners. No matter how strong their own personal spirit might have been, they no doubt face sorrow and physical and emotional pain and disappointment. And yet, that is the community of God. When we worship together, as I said, as I said this morning, we we bring the roller coasters of our lives into this space. We bring our joys and our happiness, our sorrows and our pain, our questions and our frustrations. We bring these into this space. We bring them together. We sing about them. We pray about them. We celebrate them. We confront all of them. This is what it means for us to be a church, to be a community of God, that we may never face the sort of persecution that we see in this passage, but we should be prepared to move toward discomfort, toward conflict. We should be prepared to wear the clothing of Christ that Jennings describes, the clothing of Christ, clothing that brings these moments of difficulty and conflict. But friends, let me also say this passage this passage, we, we've, I focus on the disciples and what they're facing, and we can, we can draw hope uh, and inspiration and, and a blueprint for what it means for us to be a church. But I also want us to consider this passage through the eyes of the owners of this enslaved girl. Individuals who are so threatened that they drag innocent people into a crowd, who are so threatened that they hurl out anti-Jewish language to stoke fear, who are so threatened that they rile up a crowd to beat and strip these innocent people. Maybe you're not that person who would go to those extremes to protect your power or your, your influence. Maybe you're a person in the crowd 
who hears language like what we see in verse 20. These men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar. Maybe you're in the crowd and you hear that language and you think, yeah, the problem is those people. It's their fault that X, Y, and Z is happening in this city, in this neighborhood, in this country. Maybe you wield power wherever God has placed you. You wield power like the magistrates here who see what's happening and they condone it. And not only do they condone it, but they escalate it. This passage isn't just about disciples of Christ being persecuted. This is about people who are created in the same image of that Christ who then distort and destroy that image in themselves and in others. It's quite the passage, huh? (laughs) But I actually think this is perfect for us because this is real. This is real. We don't skirt by the difficulty of real life. We don't ignore the pain of those around us. We don't hide the pain that we ourselves might be causing, but we confront it and we do this together. And we do this, friends, we do this with a tremendous amount of hope. The hope that Rinalda showed us last week as she preached, the hope that we lifted up in our last song that we sang, uh, Drive Out the Darkness, hope that allows us to lift our voices to God and say, come, end all the violence. Come, do not be silent. Come, cling to your promise. Come, break all injustice. Come, Jesus, come. Come, Jesus. It's that hope. It's that hope that we will see next week. That hope that even with the physical and emotional pain these disciples are facing, even with the humiliation and hurt they've taken on, we will see the hope of a coming Jesus and how they respond and in how the Holy Spirit moves in this situation. And though we will get to that next week, we acknowledge this hope today, that we may not see hope explicitly in these few verses, but we acknowledge and we cling to that hope as we sing together and as we pray as we sit here at this very moment, and it's that hope that we expect, that we desperately run to when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, when we partake in communion together, which our friend Rinalda is going to lead us here in just a moment. This is the complexity of the Christian life, and yet this is also the incredible beauty of the Christian life, that even in the most complex reality, there is a hope that breaks through all of that. Even in the most complex neighborhood, Like Hell's Kitchen, there is a hope that can break through all of that. Hope that is found in this person of Jesus Christ who died and who rose from that death. And who, as we saw at the very beginning of this sermon series eight months ago, who rose into the heavens and promised that he would return. Who would return to this world, just as Lisa prayed, to wipe away injustice, to wipe away humiliation, to wipe away brutality, to wipe away systems of oppression, to wipe away every every tear and all our pains. But until then, we, this community, whatever it looks like today, tomorrow, next week, 10 years from now, until then, this community that God has formed and continues to form, we will love and serve this complex neighborhood of of our beloved Hell's Kitchen. We'll pray for this beloved Hell's Kitchen. We'll seek to hold sacred the image of this God that is inherent in every resident and in every friend and in every neighbor. We will seek to be active witnesses to this work, to walk as Jesus did, to humbly love as Jesus did, and to courageously serve as Jesus did. We see that in the walking and the working of these disciples. We see that in the clothing that they wear, the clothing of Christ. 
we will, like these disciples in this passage, we will wear the clothing of Jesus Christ. We will hope as we sing, as we pray, and as we cry out, come, Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, it's hard to, to give much gratitude for a passage like this, but we thank you for this, God, the sacred text of what your disciples experienced, God, that as they are walking to a place of prayer, that something like this would happen to them, God. We pray that we would draw much hope, Lord, not from being persecuted, but from the way that you can move through pain and that the way that you will move through difficulty, the way that you will move in this world, God, the ways that you moved in the first century, the ways that you are moving at this very moment. So Lord, be with us today as we rest on this passage, as we look ahead to next week, Lord, to see your hope breaking through And be with us now, God, as we desperately run to this hope at the Lord's table, where we pray all of these things in the name of our Savior and your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Rinalda, I will um, pass it to you now. So as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's think of it as a table of hope. Pastor Chuck said to me, there is always hope at the table. And we see hope in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The return of the Lord is a significant hope mentioned at the Lord's table when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We think about his death, what it means for our salvation and the gift of eternal life. But let's also think about what his return means. The fulfillment of all that Jesus taught the fulfillment of his mission to restore all creation, the fulfillment of an end to all sorrow, misery, unfairness, discrimination, hatred, and violence, and the fulfillment of everlasting love, peace, and joy. But until Jesus comes to fulfill all these things, we can still have hope in our trials, when there's an end to a relationship, an unexpected death of a child or loss of a job, Jesus helps us to persevere with hope in all our struggles and pain. And a light appears at the end of the dark tunnel so that with the eyes of our heart enlightened, Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, we may know what is the hope to which Jesus has called us. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on these truths, to repent, to pray as we prepare for our Lord's table of hope.